Welcome to Surreal Politics. This is Stage 1, Episode 6. Today is April 24th, 2023 is the current year. It's good to be with all of you. 217-688-1433 if you'd like to get on the phones tonight. I titled this episode, Misesian Socialism, and I want to talk about economics. But you might have gathered, if you haven't been hiding under a rock all day, and if you have been hiding under a rock all day, I envy you. I got to tell you. I would have, I was like, there's a rock outside the other day, and I was like, I should just get under that thing. But if you haven't been uh, hiding under a rock, you know, there's actually a lot going on. But I am going to try to get through this uh, this thing, because uh, economics is kind of an important thing to talk about. But Tucker Carlson just got fired from Fox News. Well, it didn't actually just happen. It happened on Friday. It, that was his last episode. And then uh, they didn't say anything about it. And today they're like, uh, we better fill these guys in that we just fired the most important guy on television. Otherwise, when they see Brian Kilmeade there, they're going to they're gonna throw a fit, you know. And I was like, well, I, as a matter of fact, I'm going to throw a fit anyway. I, I, the idea that I'm going to put up with Brian Kilmeade is kind of, kind of a stretch, you know. They let him go. We're going to talk about this more after I get done with the monologue, but <laughs> I, I have to, you know, open up with this because it's, it's, it's pretty big. You know, and everybody's going on. And saying, you know, oh, here's what happened to Tucker. Here's what happened to Tucker. Here's what happened to Tucker. And, you know, as is often a case with these things, it's not it's not one thing, right? Uh, RFK Jr. had been recently interviewed on the show. And he was like, uh, you know, he's all about these big on going after the, the pharma companies, you know. And Tucker Carlson is like, hey, you know, all the news networks are sponsored by Pfizer and this guy attacks Pfizer, and then they won't let him on their airwaves or whatever. Well, you know, I don't give an F about Pfizer, so you can come on my airwaves, RFK. And we'll talk about some reasonable things that you believe. And so RFK is just like, oh, well, it's all about Big Pharma. Big Pharma's done did it. You know, that, that like, I don't know, got gassed in wartime voice that he's got, you know. And other people said it was because there's this, uh, this woman is suing him. <laughs> So this woman is suing Tucker Carlson in Fox News, okay? So she was working for Maria Bartiromo. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Maria Bartiromo, but she actually, she used to do an all right show. I think the show has really precipitously declined in the last couple of years. It's called Sunday Sunday Morning Futures. I mean, she does something during the week, too. I've never watched the Fox Business Morning Show that she does called Mornings with Maria. Um, I never watched that one, but on on Sundays she does the 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 Sunday show called um, uh, Sunday Morning Futures, and I think it actually used to be a pretty good show. And then, like I guess after the Trump administration went out, she's I don't know her sources are not as good or whatever, and it's kind of declined a lot. And so, who this woman was like working for Maria Bartiromo, and she wasn't getting along with Maria Bartiromo, so they moved her over to Tucker Carlson. <laughs> And then she quits and she says that, you know, she was insulted and there was anti-Semitism and all this stuff. And when I heard about this, I said to myself, I'm like, okay, so this woman couldn't get along with Maria Bartiromo. So you sent her over to Tucker Carlson. Who thought that was a good idea? And the answer very plainly is nobody thought that was a good idea, right? Nobody who knows anything about anything is like, oh, well, we'll go send you over to the show that is the most controversial show in the network because that's what we do with people who are like, oh, I can't get along with people. I'll just go send you over to Tucker Carlson. That sounded, that sounds to me like uh, a little bit of a trap, you know. 
And uh, then there's the other thing. So this woman's suing, right? She's like, oh, it's a hostile work environment. They're a bunch of anti-Semites. Okay. And then there's the Ray Epps thing, you know. And Ray Epps, uh, you might know, he was uh, he was down there on January 6th committing crimes, you know. And so it's weird when there's a guy on when you see a guy on video and he's committing crimes, you know, it happens sometimes. You might have seen this when when people are on camera committing crimes. Right. And then everybody else who's there goes to jail and and another guy who's also there committing crimes doesn't go to jail. That is something that a lot of people consider kind of suspicious. Right. And it's one thing if, like, you are committing crimes and you don't go to jail. That's, you know, it happens all the time. I mean, especially, you know, demographics and stuff like that. But, I mean, that doesn't fit Ray Epps. But you get the idea. But it's one thing to, like, get away with a crime. I mean, people get away with crimes all the time. It's another thing to be, like, at a right-wing riot, commit a bunch of crimes, not go to jail, and then get praised by Democrats. That's, a, that's like, you know, when the, when the Democrat Party is like, well, you're a very cooperative criminal, and we're, you know, we're not saying that you're ratted on anybody or anything, but we're really happy to have your cooperation with our investigation. Okay. All right. But I'll tell you, I, uh, I watch Tucker Carlson all the time, you might have gathered. And some of the things he said about Epps, I was even like, whoa, dude, what are, you, what are you trying to do? You know, like, I don't have the exact quote in front of me. Um, but, I mean, he is, he's, if he hasn't said it outright, he's come, on, he's come close enough to saying outright that Ray Epps was working for the government on January 6th. He's, I'm not saying that Tucker Carlson has said those words. But the implication, at the very least, is so strong that I have repeatedly been left with the impression that maybe Tucker Carlson is trying to get sued by Ray Epps so that he will get discovery in that lawsuit in order to find out if Ray Epps was working for the government on January 6th. That was an impression that I got, like, months ago. And so uh, it turns out, you know, that Ray Epps has uh, been—his lawyer has been sending, you know, threatening letters to Fox News like, hey— you know, if you guys don't want to get dragged through court again, you might want to shut that guy up. And you might have heard that, talk, uh, you know, Fox News um, has reason to try to stay out of court because, you know, their lawyers are pretty busy people. They just settled a lawsuit for $787 million with Dominion Voting Systems because— uh, because they say that uh, some of the things that were said about Dominion voting systems on a Fox News channel and Fox Business Network were, uh, were not true. Okay. But, you know, since when is, like, the news, like, not telling the truth is, like, something that everybody gets bent out of shape about, right? I mean, I see things in the news all the time that are not true. That's why I don't trust the news. <laughs> That's why I'm not stupid enough to be like, oh, it was in the New York Times. must have happened, you know? I imagine most of you uh, view the world uh, not entirely dissimilarly, and wisely so. And so, I'm like, why is it that um, Fox News... Can we prove anyone actually went to jail for J6? Media reports and political posturing don't cut it as evidence. I don't know. 
Um, I'm sorry. That's something that I was reading on uh, on one of the chats. I should wait until I'm done uh, done with my monologue. Uh, you know, Sarah Palin just went and sued, you know, the New York Times because they printed something that was like actually demonstrably false, right? That they had to know was false. And they were like, well, you didn't meet the actual malice standard. And because you're a public figure, um, you know, they're allowed to lie about you. So it's completely different. Okay. There's the whole thing. I mean, there's the famous case, the the, the actual malice standards coming from a case for, called in New York, uh, Sullivan, New York Times v. Sullivan or Sullivan v. New York Times. And somebody sued the New York Times for defaming him. And they were like, well, so what if we printed untrue stuff about you? You can't prove that we knew it was false or something to that effect. You can't know. You can't prove that we did this with the intention of harming you. And therefore, um, you can't have any money. OK. All right. And so when the president of the United States says the election was stolen and you're saying to yourself like, hey, wait a second. Um, this guy, who nobody really cares for that much, just got more votes than any president in history, and he did not campaign. I think that's suspicious. And some people are saying, you know, I, 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 even from where I was when this happened, I understood that some of these stories were crackpot stuff, you know. When I saw Rudy Giuliani's hair, like, you know, coming apart on his head, like dripping down his cheek, I was like, oh, my God, Rudy, what happened to you? Um... You know, I realized some of this stuff was crackpot stuff. Fine. But why does it entitle them to three quarters of a billion dollars? Uh, you know, I'm not sure that that's uh, I'm not sure that that's warranted. And of course, it's not just Dominion. It's Smartmatic is still suing them. So they they settled the case with Dominion, seven hundred and eighty seven million dollars to them. And now they've got these other guys who are like, yeah, I'm suing you, too. And the lawsuit's been ongoing. Um, I wonder if they think that uh, Fox News might settle with them. That's probably the expectation, right? And, you know, if you're some scumbag left-wing lawyer who wants to go run around destroying the conservative media ecosystem, you know, suing Fox News seems to be like a good way to go ahead and get some money. You could get some money. You could get your favorite personality kicked off the air. Or my favorite personality. It's not your favorite personality, obviously. It's lawfare. It's an attack and it's a sustained attack that's been going on for a long, 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 long time, right? <laughs> you, you guys know how Tucker Carlson got on the air, don't you? You, you, you uh, Some of you guys might be too young to remember this. I don't know. It used to be a guy by the name of Bill O'Reilly, you might have heard. And Bill O'Reilly, uh, for all his faults, I got a soft spot for Bill O'Reilly, you know. I, uh, I didn't know anything about the government. I didn't know anything about politics in September 2001. I saw the Twin Towers come down and everybody's like talking about all this political stuff. And I'm like, what the heck's going on? And I'm like, I got to watch the news all day and figure out why my country just got attacked, you know? And, uh, you know, and, you know, you watch the news during the day and, uh, and it's kind of like, okay, well, you know, here's a bunch of stuff and then uh, we'll move on to the next story. And then 8 o'clock came around, you know, and then it's Bill O'Reilly. And Bill O'Reilly's like, all right, you know, here's the no-spin zone. And, uh, and that's not a real Bill O'Reilly impression. I'm just, you know, saying that there's some there's some attitude there, you know. And, and I didn't understand the difference between the daytime news people and the Fox News evening opinion lineup at the time. I didn't understand this at the time. I didn't, I didn't know the difference. And so I was like, oh, finally, somebody who's ticked off like me. And, I, you know, I got into Bill O'Reilly for a long time. I watched Bill O'Reilly for years. 
And Bill O'Reilly for a long time, like, informed all of my political opinions. I was like, he's the one who's telling me the truth, you know. <laughs> he's the only one who's really ticked off of these Democrats like I am. And so, uh, I, you know, I watched Bill O'Reilly for years. This is the moral of the story. And then, you know, there was this, like, wave of, like, sexual harassment lawsuits that happened at Fox News, right? It begins, it's this predictable pattern where they're like, okay, you're a bunch of sexists because everybody on the air is male. You have a bunch of men telling people what's going on, which means that you're a bunch of misogynists. You're discriminating against women. You've got to go get some women in there. And then I'm like, all right, we'll hire a bunch of broads. And then they sue everybody for sexual harassment. <laughs> you see how that works? You do what the Democrats tell you, and then you get ruined. It's, it's You could set your watch to this stuff, you know? And I don't know why people still fall for it. And so, you know, Bill O'Reilly gets fired. And the left is ecstatic about this, obviously. They're like, oh, my God, Bill O'Reilly's been criticizing us, and we can't tolerate that, so we've got to get rid of this guy. So we'll sue him a hundred times. And then they got rid of Bill O'Reilly. And I wasn't happy about this at the time, but I wasn't enthralled to Bill O'Reilly by this point, right? Like, I had kind of, like, you know, long before that had happened, you know, I sort of realized that, you know, Fox News was sort of this sort of milk toast, you know, middle of the road, conservative, wish-washy thing. And so, you know, I got into libertarianism and then I started drifting rightward, you know. And so I wasn't, you know, I didn't miss Bill O'Reilly all that much when he was when he was fired, but I realized it was a bad thing that Fox News was being dismantled by lawsuits, you know. And so... After he got fired, I watched, you know, social media erupted. The left is all happy about this. And and then they brought on Tucker. <laughs> and I knew, like, before his, before his first episode even happened, I knew that, like, Tucker Carlson was really important, you know. I was like, oh, my God, this is going to totally change stuff. And so I was so enthusiastic about that. And it turned out that, you know, my enthusiasm was not unwarranted, you know. And uh, he turned out to be really important. And he totally changed, you know, he changed the entire, you know, media ecosystem, Tucker Carlson. You can't overemphasize this. And, of course, they had to come for him. And, and how did they do it? They, they took this idiot who was working for Maria Bartiromo, this Jewish woman, you know. She just happens to be Jewish. I'm not saying anything about it. You know, it's just, it's a coincidence is what they call these things. And so... She is working for Maria Bartiromo. She can't get along there. And so they're like, I got an idea. Why don't you go have a coincidence over at uh, Tucker Carlson's uh, show? And then she's like, oh, well, you know what? He's spreading election lines that he's an anti-Semite. And I'm going to sue you. And then, uh, and then Tucker Carlson gets fired. Now, something tells me they're not going to upgrade Tucker Carlson. You know? And if you needed any confirmation of the fact that they're not going to upgrade Tucker Carlson... <laughs> Um, some of you might have seen this. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I, I, I posted on Telegram and all the social media channels. Anybody followed me over here from Truth Social, you know, hats off to you. And my best Truth Social today ever, and that doesn't say much, because I don't get a lot of engagement on Truth Social. But I posted on wherever I am, listen to, I was like, Brian Kilmeade of all people, right? Like, Brian Kilmeade? I don't know if you guys, if you guys are not Fox News viewers, this doesn't maybe <laughs> ring that much of a bell to you. But, um, you know, I think that you could say that Brian Kilmeade makes Volodymyr Zelensky look like a moderate on the Ukraine question. OK, 
Brian Kilmeade is like, oh, no, you know, Vladimir Putin is the devil incarnate. And I'm just going to talk to General Jack Keane all day. <laughs> well, I'm going to I'm just going to go and bring General Jack Keane on and be like, so General Jack Keane, how bad is Vladimir Putin? Vladimir Putin very bad. OK, so should we give the uh, Ukrainians more weapons, General Jack Keane? Oh, yeah, we should give them more weapons. OK, what else should we do, General Jack Keane? We should probably kill some Russians ourselves. OK, Jack Keane. And that, you know, like I, what I started to sort of get into is that there's all of these different things. Everybody assigns it to one thing or another. There was the, what, he was on the Adam Carolla show not so long ago, Tucker. And Adam, and he told Adam Carolla, he's like, oh, well, you know, when whites become a minority, which is rapidly happening, I'm not saying it's because of that Democrat immigration policy. I've learned better than to say that out loud. When whites become the minority, there's going to be people who stand up for us as a minority. They're going to say, I'm the part of Canada white people, and I'm going to tell that guy to F off, he said. And a bunch of people, they went crazy about that. They're like, hey, wait a second. You know, we need somebody to stand up for us. And I mean, that's not an unreasonable point to make, frankly. But, you know, he's like, what he was saying is, I'm not going to let you speak on my behalf just because, you know, we happen to have the same skin color. And if you understand, you know, sort of what's been going on in that sort of section of our politics, that actually makes a great deal of sense. You know, there's a guy by the name of Richard Spencer endorsed Joe Biden. He claims to be like some kind of, you know, white leader. And I'm like, well, you know, if you endorse Joe Biden, you don't get to speak on my behalf either. You know, that makes a lot of sense to me. But a lot of people went crazy about this. And, so, and then so when this happens today, people would think, oh, well, that's probably what he's trying to do. He's trying to distance himself because he knew he was going to get canned. OK. But I'll tell you what, I got to say, I think the, the fact that they put Kilmeade in that chair today is all the evidence you need that Ukraine is the, uh, the driving factor behind this. Because that was the middle finger to all of us, you know, like to put Brian Kilmeade there is the, it, it is like, hey, we're sending you a message. OK, they had Will Kane on. If you watch the Fox News channel, you know who I'm talking about. He does the Fox and Friend, the Fox and Friends weekend show. He's filled in for Tucker before, and he actually does a, a reasonably good job of it. When when they were doing, before Jesse Waters took the 7 p.m. slot, um, they were, you know, they did Fox News primetime, and, and they were rotating out hosts. And I was like, I hope Will Kane gets that show, you know. And they put Jesse Waters there, and I was, like, irritated by it. I was like, Jesse's not that good. And Jesse Waters turned out to be better than I thought. But anyway, that's not the point. So they put, today, Jesse Waters was, was out, and they put Will Kane in for Jesse Waters, okay? And, and Will Kane is more than capable of filling in for Tucker. They put Will Kane in for Jesse Waters, and then at 8 o'clock, who comes on my screen but Brian Kilmeade, who's the big Ukraine apologist who doesn't care about any of the things that you and I care about. That's a big middle finger to us. That was not subtle. That was a really intentional insult to that audience. And I got so mad. I got so mad. You know, I haven't changed the channel on my television. It's it's definitely been months. I mean, I, I do not change the channel on my television. The only reason I have TV is for the Fox News channel. I just leave it on in the background. It's muted 90% of the time. Every once in a while, I see something on the, you know, the lower third, and I unmute the TV. I'm like, what's happening, you know? But I unmute, I watch Tucker Carlson. And so... Uh, I haven't changed the TV channel in months, not since I had a guest in my apartment, which is not something that happens very frequently. And so today I saw this, I saw Brian Kilmeade on there and I was like, I was about to turn the TV off. And then I was like, no, I've got to change the channel first. <laughs> so 
I put on CNN out of spite, and then I turned off the television. <laughs> That's how mad I was to see Brian Kilmeade sit in that chair. And so, you know, there's a lot of things, I think, that, you know, led up to this. And people say it was, you know, Rupert Murdoch himself, and there's all these various different things, but these are the pressures that pile on, right? You're accused of being an anti-Semite. You're not on board with the war project. You, uh, you know, you don't apologize for noticing the immigration problem. You, uh, you show videos of people committing crimes and people are able to, you know, gather demographic details about the people in those videos. That'll get you in some trouble, boy, I'll tell you. <laughs> so, you know, so they got Tucker, I guess is the moral of the story. And I'm really, really upset about that, honestly. I'm really bent out of shape about it. Because uh, uh, you should not underestimate the, the level of problem that's going to cause. You know, I, you know, there's people who are listening to the sound of my voice right now, and you know what they think? They think that it's like controlled opposition, right? They think it's like, uh, you know, what what's they call the, the pressure release valve. That like, oh, well, if, you, if they didn't give us Tucker Carlson, then there'd be yada, yada, yada. And so they allow him to go on there and give it this much truth. But he's really in on it, man. He's working for them. He's, he's, he's the problem, as a matter of fact. We got to get rid of that guy. You know, it's the attitude some people have. Uh, and, uh, well, you know, I guess they took your pressure release valve away. So, you know, those of you who have been waiting for the pressure to build, I guess you're going to get your way. And I suspect you're going to be really, like, unhappy with the results, frankly. <laughs> I really don't think that it's going to—I really think you're going to be upset with what happens. I don't think it's going to be anything like what you thought it was. You know, there's a presidential election coming up, you might have heard. <laughs> you think that might have something to do with it? <laughs> what do you think is going to happen during a Republican primary? you think they're going to put a Trump guy in there? I, you know, maybe they will. But do you think that the Trump guy is going to do a good job, I guess, right? Maybe. I don't know. But not as good a job as Tucker Carlson would have done. You know, the Fox News Channel doesn't just, like, disseminate conservative propaganda to the general electorate. Or more importantly, still, you know, Republican primary voters specifically. But it's not just that. It informs the opinions of thought leaders throughout the entire media ecosystem. Newspaper reporters, editors, talk radio hosts, social media influencers in America and around the world. That made Tucker Carlson an unofficial advisor to congressmen, senators, members of parliaments, presidents, prime ministers, FBI agents, CIA agents, police officers, and judges. You think that matters? He influenced the opinions of jurors. You think that matters? Lawyers. The people who decide if you get banned from social media or financial services. I'm not going to get too specific here, but uh, you might have heard I've had some adventures in legal land, you know. And I'll tell you what, uh, I've come across a few people during the course of those adventures that had the capacity to make my life easier or more difficult according to their preference, you know. You talk to these people and some of them are Tucker Carlson viewers. And I don't think that you need a whole lot of time to think about whether the ones who are Tucker Carlson viewers made my life easier or more difficult. You know the answer to that. And so I am really, really, really upset about this. And uh, I don't think anything good is going to come of it. 
217-688-1433 if you'd like to be on the program. And the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do. Give us a call. I meant to – let's start this thing here. I should be running the – the people who are watching on the video streams, you're supposed to be able to see my uh, my thing is supposed to change every you know few minutes. So that you could see the number on there. But I should say it out loud for the people who are listening on audio, 217-688-1433. Now, I told you that I titled the episode today, uh, Misesian Socialism. Now, in a re- in the practice of realpolitik, which is the whole point of this show, by the way, surreal politics, it's not like surreal politics, it's realpolitik, but surreal is kind of the bit, if you tune in for the first time. And in the practice of realpolitik, it is typically considered ill-advised to go out of one's way to antagonize the greatest number of possible uh, greatest possible number of political participants with one's speech. Today, we're breaking that rule with our episode title, Misesian Socialism. The phrasing derives from the name of one Ludwig von Mises, an Austrian economist of Jewish ancestry who rather famously held socialism in the utmost contempt. Wait a second. What is that? Don't do that. Get that scene out of here. Delete that scene. Yes, I want to delete scene five. I can't believe that. Sorry about that, fellas. So, there we go. One of these days, I'm going to have a tech guy. I'm going to have like a studio. I'm going to have somebody deal with this so I can talk to you and somebody else can deal with all this nonsense. If you pay me at uh, givesendgo.com slash SPM, you go to become a, a member at surrealpoliticsmedia.com slash join, and get me, uh, get me closer to that point. So he was an Austrian economist of Jewish ancestry, and he rather famously held socialism in the utmost contempt, as I would say. Thus, at first glance, we might appear to be dealing with a contradiction of terms and be presumed to have made a failed attempt at humor. And fail though we may, humor is not the goal here, fellas. In recent discussions here and elsewhere, we've delved into economics at some depth. The manner in which we have done this has created substantial confusion in off-air discussions, and one suspects this may be because it does not seem to fall into predefined categories most are familiar with. The approach we have taken is to apply the teachings of what are commonly considered classical or free market economics to the task of central economic planning and the achievement of what are typically considered socialist ends. Most recently, we had a conversation uh, on another venue, as it were, about uh, socialized medicine. And then uh, not so long ago, somebody came in. We, we spent almost an entire hour talking about the central banks. While it may strike the casual observer as bizarre, there's nothing actually forbidding this in economic thought. Okay. The classical economists have accurately described, for the most part, how an economy works. They make well-reasoned complaints about inefficiencies created by government interference in the market, and they go on to suggest, make suggestions, I should say, of political reforms with the aim of eliminating those interferences. But those political reforms are not economics. They are politics, and more to the point, they are ideological in nature. If a government program reduces the rate at which wealth is grown or distributes it in ways that an individual finds distasteful, That does not necessarily mean that the program should not exist. This is simply an observation upon which one forms a subjective preference. It may well be the case that the people of the country or the governing authorities 
find this forfeiture of economic efficiency a worthwhile trade-off for other economic or non-economic benefits produced by the program, or circumstances of the time may require that such forfeiture be made to avoid greater losses, with the most notable example being inflationary monetary policy to facilitate military objectives, right? The premise of our concept here is essentially that the classical economists are correct so long as they remain value-free. While their analysis tends to be scientific and accurately describe economic phenomena in past and present, the track record has been for them to veer away from the scientific and into the value-laden world of politics and philosophy once they begin talking about the future. As a consequence of this, their predictions of the future tend to fall flat, by the way. This is not part of my, my script here, but it's kind of an important you know, function. They say, well, if you do this and you do this and you do this, then the economy will collapse is sort of like how they... they they frame these things, and it's like, well, no. If you do these things, then there will be problems, and then they will do something to keep the economy going, and then there will be new problems will be created, etc. is kind of like how this works, okay? Whatever one's preferences may be as to the degree of government interference in the economy, it is inevitable that, the, that some intervention is going to occur. And so while the analysis of these economists um, is—I'm uh, repeating the other line— since it is inevitable, I should say, calling for it to cease is an ideological masturbatory exercise, all right? Consequently, it is not conducive to influencing the outcome of policy discussions, and since influencing the outcome is the entire point of realpolitik, we must rule it out from our strategic repertoire. Simultaneously, we observe the phenomenon that since has... Um, I'm sorry, we observe the phenomenon that since this has for so long been the pathology, the advocates of government intervention tend to be, at best, economic illiterates. All too frequently, they are brilliant students of economics who understand full well that what they are doing is catastrophically destructive, and they pursue these wild schemes parading under the guise of economic policies anyway, either as a short-sighted political strategy for the attainment and maintenance of their own power, or as a means of waging war against the societies they govern or aim to govern. From here, we derive ideas like healthcare as a human right and the absolute equality of economic outcome regardless of behavior being the object of all government activity. Our view could fairly be described as a third position. We aim to understand market forces and the science behind them, then to analyze and understand the distortion of market forces caused by government interference in the economy, then to intelligently guide that interference in ways that are at least less destructive than current and prior practice, and preferably to aid in the advancement of the national interest, which it will be our task to define going forward. And this, of course, the definition of the national interest, we acknowledge is itself a value-laden exercise, but we do not pretend to be mere economic analysts. We are not just scientists. We are politically interested, and we begin with that built into our assumptions. The most efficient way to crisply illustrate our concept is to discuss the subject of monetary policy. It's funny for me to read now. <laughs> Because uh, this is not crisp at all. I go on at some length about this. but It will be beyond the scope of our task today to give the listener a full explanation of the history of monetary theory, and we will not today attempt to develop a new theory. But we can give some contrast to illustrate our point. 
Ludwig von Mises was, and most of his disciples still are, advocates of what they call sound money or hard money. This is, in effect, little more than a euphemism for either a gold standard or some other um, hard-limited form of commodity acting as the primary unit of exchange within a given market. What followers, uh, followers of what is often referred to as the Chicago School of Economics put forward the concept of monetarism, which holds, in the briefest and most inadequate of summations, that the state can and should issue currency by fiat without the limits imposed by commodity money, but that limits ought nonetheless be imposed by law and to seek out a target growth rate in the money supply to create a predictable rate of price increases, typically referred to as inflation. These both stand in contrast to the dominant theories of John Maynard Keynes, who posited that the government, or to the extent they are separate things, the central bank, should use its control over interest rates and the money supply to minimize unemployment even at the expense of inflation. These all stand in still greater contrast to what has been called modern monetary theory, which might charitably be described as a war on mathematics and might more accurately be called postmodern monetary theory. Now, for the uninitiated, this may sound like a bit much, so we're going to break it down some, even at the risk of saying a few things which others might find obvious, but this warrants some explanation to bring us all to the same page. Let's begin on a deeper level than money itself. The function of money is largely to represent value, and value itself is a topic which is not nearly often enough discussed. Everybody thinks that they're on the same page about value, but we see it demonstrated constantly that that's not the case. To be sure, now, um, in Marx's theory, value derives from labor. And from this derives something called the labor theory of value. And to be sure, people attach value to labor and typically, though not always, a negative value, right? Man does not typically labor except to obtain some other satisfaction or to calm some other uneasiness. One does not typically pay a man to do a thing which he would prefer to do himself, right? This is the disutility of labor, as it's called in economics, and that all else equal, man prefers leisure to labor. It's almost like the, it's basically the def definition of the term, okay? But while this will get an economist through a lot of economic questions, it is insufficient. One who labors for a long time and exerts lots of energy to break down the walls of his home with a small hammer does not create value thereby, right? You just spend your day destroying your house. You've, you've worked very hard, but it doesn't mean that you've created value. Even in the case where the house must be broken down for some valuable purpose, such as to replace it with a better house, Doing so with a small hammer instead of modern machinery can only be seen as a senseless expenditure of labor and therefore a squandering of value. The fact of labor in itself does not produce value. Moreover, it is by no means impossible for value to emerge absent labor when value is prop properly understood. Defining value and labor in near synonymous terms ignores the fact that human beings derive satisfaction from or are relieved of uneasiness by all manner of things and that they value these satisfactions and reliefs. Think for a moment about the classic story of Tom Sawyer in which he is, which he is tasked with painting a fence and he understandably has other designs on how he would prefer to spend his time. To free himself from the burden, he convinces other children in the neighborhood that painting fences is one of life's great joys, and he ends up charging them items of value to take their turn at his new favorite hobby.
Before long, Tom is relaxing and enjoying the payments he has collected from the other children who are now doing his chore for him. Now, one way to look at this, and surely it's the point of the story, is that Tom has committed a sort of fraud and tricked the children into laboring on his behalf. Another theory is that value is in the eye of the beholder. After all, nobody in the story is at all unhappy. The children are painting the fence, they're having a good time, and they have paid for the privilege to do so, which uh, Tom is very happy to take their money. When people pay for a membership to a fitness club, for example, they are, in effect, paying for the privilege of laboring, right? They want to exert energy for the purpose of becoming more physically fit, and so they either run in place or lift heavy things, and few would accuse the gym of fraud for this. A not entirely dissimilar phenomenon emerges in the case of internships or apprenticeships in which one labors for free or at a steep discount or may even pay for the privilege in order to learn a marketable skill, which they presume will pay dividends in the future, though this is absolute, no, there's no absolute certainty to this, nor of anything else pertaining to time not yet arrived. And so value is, above all, subjective is sort of the point. Value is the satisfaction of wants or the mitigation of uneasiness. It is a purely psychological phenomenon, and though not beyond a degree of estimation, there can be no precise calculation of such things on an individual level, much less on a sort of grand scale that comprises a national or world economy. And this is very important to understand when discussing money, and in particular prices. There is a coherent line of reasoning that there is no such thing as overcharging for a product or service. There's coherent lines of reasoning against this idea, too, but I'm just explaining it to you. The fact that an exchange takes place in this framework is enough evidence that the price is right, because as long as coercion is not part of the equation, it is presumed that a transaction would only occur if both parties agreed. If I value the widget at $2 and you value the widget at $3, you will keep the widget and I will keep my money. Reverse the numbers and the exchange takes place and both of us walk away thinking we got a great deal, right? Unless you understand that value is subjective, the occurrence of this transaction is not evidence of agreement but of theft. An objective theory of value would posit that the disparity in the perception of value of the item could only mean that one or more parties to the transaction had calculated incorrectly and that the party who had calculated in error had been wrongly deprived of the value which constituted the variance. This is where the idea of profit being evil derives from, okay? In this view, profit is theft because it is predatory to sell something for more than the thing is objectively valued, and that this value is innately tied to the cost of its production, typically with an inextricable link to the labor involved. But if one thinks this through, it is not difficult to see the problems that would emerge from imposing such a system upon society. Here we use the word imposing with all intention because it is entirely unnatural and could only be implemented by coercion. And by the way, even with the coercion, it can't be implemented. It can't function. If two people have the exact same idea as to the value of an item, there is no reason for them to exchange. The fact of the exchange implies differences in values since one must value the item or service he receives more than the item or service he parts with to make the exchange worth even thinking about, much less conducting. Why would you give somebody to something and be exactly where you were before? There's no reason to do that. The whole entire purpose of the trade is to satisfy the wants of individuals by leveraging the variances in their subjective preferences. It's the whole entire purpose of trading. 
money comes into play as a means by which to facilitate this function more efficiently. Although society seems to be at times dominated completely by money, it is actually quite plain to see that literally nobody wants money. Nobody wants money, okay? People want stuff. People want favors. Money is only valued to the extent that it can be used to acquire things that people do want. And absent this capacity, it is scarcely worth the caloric value it provides as fuel for a fire. Nobody wants money. People want stuff. And if they can't buy stuff with money, then you literally can't pay them to hold on to it for you. Ludwig von Mises famously said, Government is the only institution that can take a valuable commodity like paper and make it worthless by applying ink. Now, this is obviously not entirely true. You can surely ruin paper with ink if you try hard enough. And I might argue that many a newspaper does this every single day. This is just a hyperbolic way of complaining about paper money, but it is an amusing way of illustrating our point about what money is. Money as such has no value. It is only valuable to the extent it facilitates exchange. In fact, contramesis and other hard money advocates, money that can be put to non-monetary use is actually diminishing its usefulness as money. And cryptocurrency provides a great way to think about this. Dispense for a moment with the mechanics of the different types of cryptocurrencies out there for now. Proof of work, proof of stake, numerically limited or inflationary, and it just just consider what it tangibly is, all right? What is the weight, or better put, the mass of a Bitcoin? How much space does one Bitcoin occupy? How about a million Bitcoins? They are, at the end of the day, just units of account. They are numbers on a ledger. They don't take up physical space and they don't have a weight or any mass to them. While other aspects of how various cryptocurrencies work impose costs upon the system, this is in essence what money ought to be. Ideally, money is weightless, spaceless, infinitely divisible, infinitely transmissible, moving and storing value without any overhead whatsoever. That would be the ideal form of money. So why do Mises and others like him consider gold to be a better deal than paper money? As a matter of fact, they don't actually believe that. Truth of the matter is, they, that, that's, not what they, that's not what they believe. They don't believe that paper is, uh, they, they don't believe that gold is better than paper, per se. Even with, the, even with a gold money standard, most transactions would still occur on a ledger, Okay. In his book, The Theory of Money and Credit, Mises talked a great deal about something called fiduciary media. Okay, and this is an old concept. We don't, we don't really have this anymore. But this was, in essence, paper money often issued by private financial institutions and which merely represented measured weights of pressured, precious metals. Okay, And in this case, the, the, the private institutions issuing the fiduciary media actually had meaningful limits on what they were doing. They're not the government, right? If they just run around printing up silver certificates and they can't cash them, they're going to be in a lot of trouble, okay? So the the private institutions issuing the fiduciary media are just like, here's a, here's a certificate that says that Bank of America owes you an ounce of gold, and Bank of America is going to have to cough that thing up if somebody comes and brings it in. And Mises didn't really have a problem with this so long as there were, you know, proper checks kept on it. Nobody really wants to be carrying around chunks of metal to do business, much less shipping it all over the place. It is not the gold the hard money advocates are concerned with, but rather the limiting effect it has on the money supply. 
And if you'll pardon me for just one second. What they're concerned about, <coughs> excuse me, where am I dropping frames from? Odyssey's dropping frames? That's, uh, I don't know, Odyssey. I'm, I'm streaming to Rumble. Rumble's looking pretty good, right? Let me just check on you guys real quick, if you don't mind. Yeah, Rumble's looking good. Nobody's complaining too much in there. Everything's looking good over here. Uh, yes, I told you that in the uh, in the beginning of the thing. You see, what about this one? Pardon me. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> okay, whatever. What is that? Let's, oh, no, I'm not on there. Okay, well, I'm just going to close that tab then. Anyway, sorry about that, ladies and gentlemen. So what they're trying to accomplish in any case, these guys who they, uh, they call themselves hard money advocates or advocates of a gold standard, what they're trying to accomplish is they're trying to limit increases in the money supply. That's what they're trying to accomplish. It has nothing to do with the gold itself. or not. It, it has very little to do with the gold itself, I should say. Doubtless every listener has heard of the term, the law of supply and demand. A thing which is available in great abundance, comparative to demand, is typically valued less highly than a thing which is scarce, comparative to demand. This law applies no less to money. While the quantity theory of money falls short of fully explaining monetary phenomenon, it is a necessary and integral part of money. If the government, or to the extent they are not the same thing, the central bank, issues new money at such a rate that the number of monetary units grows more rapidly than the supply of goods and services in the market, this will eventually have the effect of raising what is known as the overall price level, and this phenomenon is what is typically known as inflation. In this case, the total supply of offerings in the market marketplace constitute total demand for money, and if the supply of money increases more rapidly than these offerings, the money is necessarily devalued. Understandably, the ability to create money, so to speak, out of thin air, carries with it some rather serious temptations, you might imagine. History is littered with examples of governments trying to alleviate fiscal pressures by creating new money and creating havoc in the process. Advocates of commodity money seek to prevent these catastrophes from occurring by limiting the government's capacity to increase the money supply. And this is not an unreasonable desire, but it runs into some pretty serious problems, as you might imagine. The sound money economists are not unaware of these issues, and this is what I'm getting at when I talk about them veering away from science and getting into value-laden territory. It's not that they have faulty theories. It's that they are inserting their own opinions into policy discussions and using their very sound theories as justification for their policy preferences, okay? Let us take the most straightforward example of the problem. War, okay? In war, you have to, you know, make some difficult decisions, you might have got it. If a government were limited to a gold money standard and endeavored to wage war, 
then the government would have to, at a minimum, raise taxes high enough to pay for the military expenditures. The advocates of commodity money say, correctly, that whether the government is raising taxes or inflating the currency, it is depriving the citizenry of their wealth either way. From this, they conclude it is a better choice to raise the taxes or, better yet, stop waging war. Okay? But you might have gathered that, you know, tax increases are not always popular. All right? If you look at your bank account and you see that it has one amount of money in it today and a different money amount of money in it tomorrow, this stands out to you as a problem. All right? It is more difficult to detect when the money in your account stays the same number and— uh, and you just ha- you you have more difficulty buying things, and that doesn't happen right away. It is usually you know there's a great deal of delay involved, and so it's a sneaky tax inflation, okay? But it's very effective <laughs> because you don't have people refusing to pay it; they don't have any choice. All right. Maybe you agree with that assessment, or maybe you don't. But if you're into logic, you can see what happened here. All right. They began with a scientific analysis. They say, okay, look, if you want to uh, wage war, here's how much it's going to cost. And uh, to do this, you know, there's going to be this impact on the economy or whatever. And based on this, then I think that you should stop waging war. And war is stupid. And I'm going to go, you know, get a peace sign tattooed on me and, 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 you know, hand flowers out or whatever. Okay. It's a completely different category of action you follow. Conversely, we have another problem that emerges from this. People who disagree with the policy preference try to refute not the preference, but the science, all right? They come up with all types of lunatic ideas to do this because the science is fundamentally sound, even if the preference isn't, and they create bigger problems in the process when they do this. To justify a policy preference, fake science is produced, and then policies are based on faulty science, which results in rolling cycles of economic and other calamities, That's a rather straight, there is a rather straightforward solution to this problem, which is to accept the sound science of the hard money economist and tell him to stay the hell out of politics. Yes, increasing the money supply will cause inflation. Yes, this will result in all manner of social ills, and we consider that a small price to pay for not losing a war. So you go back to playing with your calculator and let us figure out how to keep the country safe, nerd, if you will call you back if we have other questions about the science, you know. And met with this, our economist friend, if he wants to have a say in the outcome, which he should, he would be better served to temper his suggestions. He cannot tell the government to stop fighting wars, but he can give advice on how to mitigate the consequences of inflation. One problem with the monetarist quantity theory of money is their conception of the price level. The idea from which this stems, uh, the idea from which, the I, there, I'm sorry, the problem with the monetarist theory, the monetarism is their theory of the price level. The idea from which stems this desire to maintain a given rate of inflation. Okay, so the monetarists, they're like, okay, we should have 2% inflation a year or something like this. You hear the Federal Reserve say this if you watch the Federal Reserve. They aim for a target rate of inflation of 2% a year. And there's problems that come with this, okay? When new money enters the economy, prices do not all simply increase in uniform fashion all at once, all right? If they did, inflation would not be a big deal. You can't just increase the money supply 2% a year and expect prices to go up uniformly this way. 
it creates other problems because the money doesn't come into the economy at the same rate. It emerges in different places. Prices go up in non-uniform fashion. People are trying to keep their prices down in order to maintain competition. And then like they're cutting in other places and it doesn't, you can't, it's very difficult to predict where the inflation will emerge, I should say. Prices, including wages, which are just the price of labor, are formed through a complex process of market discovery. There's no signal that says the money supply has increased 10% so raise all wages and prices accordingly. That's not how inflation works. As the new money causes more intense competition for resources, this causes upward pressure on prices, but the prices do not all rise in the precise same way and at the same time. The process is not precise. Importantly, as the scarce resources are going up in price and employers are seeing their costs increasing, the last thing they want to do is increase wages. And so, with few exceptions, wages are the last thing to rise. This is especially the case if the chaos created by the inflation causes unemployment to rise, although this usually happens as a consequence of corrective measures like um, uh, raising interest rates rather than the inflation itself. It may also be the case that whatever circumstance prompted the inflationary policy caused an increase in unemployment. Okay, so the reason that you're responding, the, the reason that you have the inflationary policy is you're responding to a position of high unemployment. Okay. But even at full employment, the disruptions created by inflation create economic uncertainty in the marketplace, and people who are disinclined to leave their jobs are in no position to demand wage increases. You follow? The hard money economist understands all of this and is capable of giving better advice than to radically alter the monetary system or to abolish war. While the increase in prices is a problem, the chaos created by their unpredictability and what we haven't yet touched upon but is not less relevant, the corrective measures— are the more caustic features. When these things are happening is when sane economists are needed the most, and it is not without consequence that it is also when they are least consulted. So returning to our example of war, the government is, for whatever reason, in a position where the authorities have the authorities believe it will be the less painful of their options to increase the money supply to cover the cost of war, okay? Some of this is pretty straightforward. The government has to purchase fuel, munitions, certain types of foodstuffs, for example. They are taking some number of able-bodied men out of the workforce, and some of those men are not coming home. Let us take fuel as our first example. Should the government just run around to retail gas stations and start purchasing up all of the diesel fuel they can find? Well, this is going to have a predictable consequence on retail fuel prices. Those fuel prices will translate into higher delivery costs, and those delivery costs will eventually contribute to a rise in the overall price level. A very sound alternative to this, especially in a place like the United States, where we have abundant untapped energy resources and a lack of refining capacity, is instead of spending that newly created money to purchase fuel on the open market— the newly created money finances the extraction of energy resources from the earth— and the building of new refining capacity, okay? Because, recall, the increase in the supply of money is not what causes the increase in prices. It is the increase in the supply of money comparative to the supply of goods and services in the market that causes the price increases. So if the government spends the money to purchase end products or raw materials which, which produce the end products, 
or is competing for a certain type of specialized labor, then yes, of course, this causes a rise in the price level. The increases in prices will first emerge in the goods and services the government purchases because it creates more intense competition for the limited resources in that sector of the market. Then, as the people and companies they purchase those goods and services from go and spend that money, it will seep into the rest of the economy, and the new price level emerges over time. The aptitudes and inclinations of the people first receiving the new money determines where they will spend it, and that is where the price increases will next emerge. And these effects continue on down the line until it reaches the things we all buy, like eggs and cheese and bread and these sorts of things at the grocery store. And importantly, there is a high likelihood that this will result in bankruptcies. Because as the new demand emerges, private producers increase production capacity, and they often do this through debt. The increased demand and consequent increase in prices signals the need to increase uh, production capacity, and that indicates that um, investment is warranted based on the demand continuing into the future. But as soon as the government's market distorting demand disappears from the market, their debt cannot be repaid and the company is forced to shut its doors. But if the new money is created and spent directly on an increase in production capacity, this is an entirely different story. If the government purchases fuel, it is competing with other fuel buyers. If the government purchases means of fuel production, it is only competing with others who might be trying to increase production capacity at that time. And if it does this before distorting the market with its own fuel purchases, this is not terribly likely to be a very serious problem. I think that that probably made sense, but I'm going to elaborate a little bit, okay? If the government goes out and starts buying up gas, you understand what happens, okay? And if it's doing it with created money, then it's like this double whammy. Even if they took tax money and just bought up all the gasoline, it's going to create a serious problem. If they're printing money to do it, it's a double whammy. You're, you're getting screwed, okay? But if the government goes out and, like, you know, takes a bunch of printed money and hires people to go work in an oil field and buys, um, you know, oil drills or whatever equipment that they need to get oil out of the ground and it builds a refining um, it builds a refining uh, capacity and it starts refining its own oil and hiring people to do all of that, even if they do that with printed money. It's, it's not that it's without consequence, but it doesn't have the same inflationary effect because you're creating new capacity. You don't have the dollars are not coming in to to compete with the with the rest of the economy. OK, you're creating new production capacity. You're increasing the amount of goods and services that are in the market. And that is has a less inflationary pressure on the market. And of course, once the government's increased demand for fuel stops in this case, the increased refining and extraction capacity is still there, importantly. Whether the government continues to operate the facilities or whether it sells them to a private company, the fact of the increased capacity now places downward pressure on fuel prices in the absence of the government's increased temporary demand, which helps to offset the lingering impacts of the inflationary policy while the money is still circulating through the economy which uh, this is not part of my script here, but it, it occurs to me, is very important because then you don't have to raise interest rates to get the money out of the economy, okay? I didn't even get into deflation here, which is like this huge problem, okay? When the government inflates the money supply and then prices start going up, then the central bank panics and it starts pulling money out of the economy by raising interest rates. When that happens, they, they start this problem all over again of the price changes, okay? When prices are rising or prices are going down, it's still creating the same chaos in the marketplace. And the worker is always the one who gets screwed, in, invariably. 
causes unemployment in the case of deflation. And so you don't want the government to have to do that. And so on top of the government's creating production capacity with the newly created money, having less of an inflationary pressure, the fact of it not creating as much inflationary pressure does not create the need for deflationary policy subsequent. And then that saves you the trouble of that chaos, which we're undergoing right now. Now, this does not by any stretch of the imagination solve all of our problems in economics, of course. One who is so inclined could go through the description of what I've just told you, and they could poke all manner of holes in this concept by saying that the government intervention in the economy, which I have described here, will still have third and fourth order effects, which I have not fully explored. Some of those criticisms will be accurate. Others might lack merit. Others will point out that what I have described here is a far cry from socialism as commonly understood, and that is surely true, but that is hardly the point. In fact, the entire purpose of the exercise is to have people who are capable of thinking along these lines, even those who would criticize me, perhaps even especially them, so long as they have the national interest at heart, participate meaningfully in the discussion, and to do so rationally instead of foolishly insisting that things be not as they are. What I've said here is by no means groundbreaking. It's pretty basic economics, actually. This is, after all, part one of what I hope to make a series within this show. All I've tried to demonstrate is that the the analysis of one immersed in free market thinking can be applied to state intervention, and I think I have demonstrated this narrow goal. I would have gone into greater depth on it, too, but then I heard about the Tucker Carlson thing, and that kind of got me blackpilled. Um, and it weighed on me very heavily this afternoon. And so I was like sort of drained of the enthusiasm that uh, got me intellectually stimulated enough to uh, write what you have heard thus far. Uh, But before I move on from this topic, I just want to make a few drive-by points on other sectors of the economy where we can apply sort of a similar analysis, and then I'll be very interested in speaking to you at 217-688-1433. Another, on another venue, we recently spent a good deal of time talking about healthcare and specifically the concept of healthcare as a human right based on a proposal by a group that said healthcare should be taken out of the hands of for profit hospitals and uh, insurance companies. This is a policy known as single payer healthcare, and it has been proposed in the United States and elsewhere before. Other places which have tried to go down this route, they, they sort of realize that this is, you can't, it's actually impossible to do, okay? Um, and during that production, I, I spent a good deal of time explaining why it's impossible to do, and it's because of uh, price formation. And I explained that this is impossible under single health care because when the government is both the buyer and the seller and the only buyer and seller, which is what single payer is, there's no means by which to calculate prices when there is no competition for resources. Okay. When people talk about healthcare access, what they are fundamentally complaining about is that healthcare is too expensive. And healthcare is always going to be expensive, you should understand this, because it is the labor of highly trained specialists using very advanced equipment, and this really must be taken into consideration when discussing public policy. But just like in our example of fuel up above, when the government responds to this problem by subsidizing consumption, the effect is not cheaper healthcare. It is the exact opposite. When you increase, when you subsidize something, you get more of it. So if you're subsidizing, what are you subsidizing? Are you subsidizing the increased production capacity? No, you're subsidizing the demand, okay? 
the effect is increased demand, which drives up the prices. And that might be of little consequence to somebody who is very sick and hoping for the government for, to pay for them to get better. And you can understand why they would feel that way. But it is not without consequence for society. When economists and ideologues take the position that the answer to expensive health care is free market absolutism, they are barred from participating meaningfully in that debate. Okay? Nobody takes that idea seriously. It's not a solution. It won't solve their problems. And if you don't propose a solution in politics, then you are not part of a political conversation. When people say that health care is a right and that the government should take over the entire industry, they are steering us toward catastrophe. And of course, they're going to fail to fulfill their promises as a consequence. I mean, forget about crashing the economy, which are just they're not going to do what they said they're going to do because it's impossible. Maybe they get us all killed in the process, but we know that they're not going to do what they said. So you know that they're not they're they're either ignorant or they're they're being dishonest. But we know what drives up the cost of health care and sane economic policies can drive these costs down. And I'm going to give you a few examples of this. Reduce or eliminate licensing requirements and other regulatory burdens for healthcare services that do not benefit from these burdens. I'm not talking about, you know, slashing all the red tape in a country, but, you know, for example, we wouldn't want just any high school dropout marketing himself as a health surgeon. But it would make a it would be a very small burden to overcome for our society to produce armies of low level physicians capable of running routine tests and diagnostics drawing blood, taking swabs or urine samples, sending them off to labs, this sort of thing. Prescribing antibiotics for tests that come back positive for bronchitis or something like this, for example, you don't need a master's degree and a postgraduate to accomplish these things. Education, more generally, has fallen into the same trap that we have described twice now, subsidized demand. The government is paying for people to go to school, whether they should be going to school or not. And many books could be and have been written describing the devastating effects this is having on our society. But one of the most profound of those effects is in healthcare. Anyone who wants to go into medicine is going to pay a tremendous amount of money for their education, in part because they're competing for the educational resources with, with people who are studying queer theory and all types of nonsense at, at government expense. Because the people inclined towards this complex and demanding profession typically do not come from poor families, they typically do not qualify for subsidies, and they are going to emerge deeply in debt from that educational adventure. <coughs> As a consequence, they have to extract the repayment of this debt from their patients, and this increases the cost of the end user. The government should not be paying for people with two-digit IQs to go to college, period, end of story. This is a program instituted primarily to eliminate racial disparities, which exist for genetic rather than economic or cultural reasons. And economic policy cannot eliminate these disparities without destroying the more gifted people among us. So the government here can do two things. It can stop subsidizing command, demand, and it can start subsidizing production, just like with our fuel example above. People who are not going to benefit from a college degree can still live happy, productive lives and raise families and be good citizens if we don't fill their heads with nonsense or treat them like they don't matter just because they perform our most important jobs like waste management and construction. If we want to subsidize education and medicine, then let us subsidize the building of more schools and the training of more teachers and more doctors and useful professions rather than nonsense about 
feminist literature. Let's offer student loan forgiveness to medical professionals who train other doctors. There's nothing intelligent about indiscriminately throwing money at the population. Rational economic policy directs resources to accomplish defined societal goals. Perhaps most importantly, let's put a lot of lawyers out of business by putting caps on punitive damages and attorney's fees in civil actions. Let's make sure that no defendant in a civil trial, such as Fox News most recently, but we're talking about healthcare right now, that no defendant in a civil trial ever has to worry about a runaway jury by limiting compensatory damages to some single-digit multiplier of a person's realistic earning capacity. Not only will this reduce the cost of medical malpractice insurance and reduce the amount of testing and treatments performed as little other than lawsuit avoidance practices, it will cause more highly capable people to choose the medical profession over becoming lawyers in the first place, and that will on its own dramatically improve the quality of the character of our citizenry. Caring for people instead of coercing them and manipulating courtrooms will be the incentive our economic policy produces. That's a reasonable and very wise thing to do. In any discussion about economics, the supply and demand of labor is always a central factor. This is what determines wages and the unemployment rate and whether a person complains that they don't earn enough for that, whether a person complains that they don't earn enough or that the things they want are too expensive, they are complaining about the same phenomenon fundamentally. There's a mismatch between what they have and what they need. Immigration is the single most important issue facing the United States today, in large part for the reason I just described. One cannot say enough about its impacts on culture or crime or politics or genetics for that matter. But for now, let's just briefly address the economic impacts on just the labor market. We don't even get to demands on the welfare state right now, just labor and wages, forget everything else. The living standards in the United States, comparable to other parts of the world, is a tremendous magnet for people who would, for entirely benevolent reasons, seek to come here, work hard, earn their keep, and be good citizens. We end up focusing way too much on the many hundreds of thousands who come here for nefarious or less than noble purposes. But let us just narrow our focus to those who come here for the best and most admirable of reasons. Those people whose motives we need not question and whose decency we need not doubt enter the labor market and drive down the price of labor by competing for jobs. That is the absolutely inescapable fact of their presence for entirely race-neutral reasons. That is enough cause to prevent their entry into the country. We kept hearing about Kamala Harris talking about the root causes of immigration as if this were some kind of mystery. It is not a mystery. It is the observable reality that one can live better here than over there. Welfare state or none. You know, Milton Freeman famously said you can have a welfare state or you can have an open border. You can't have both. No, as a matter of fact, you can't have an open border. Welfare state or not. You can't do that. If everybody who lives there comes here, this place will be more like that place. And it will no longer be a better place to live. It's very straightforward. That will solve the problem of future immigration for sure, but it will do so at the cost of our quality of life, and this is already happening. The left responds by saying that we need to, we need these people to come here because Americans won't do certain jobs or because Americans are not having enough children, 
And we need new people to pay the Social Security and Medicare bills. Okay. Well, so far as the jobs are concerned, this is largely a lie, first of all. But just accept it as true. We'll go along with the lies because just debunk the, you know, tertiary effects. Let's just say that there are unfilled jobs waiting to be done because they don't pay enough. Economics answers this question quite easily, obviously, right? The price of labor will rise until the job is done. It's not very difficult to understand. That is how price formation works. It's the whole entire point of economics to, to understand that. Bringing in millions of unskilled people to fill labor jobs simply prevents this from happening. And if wages stay sag- stagnant while health care costs rise, do not be surprised if your citizens are upset about the price of health care. It might go without saying that all of these unskilled laborers are necessarily adding to the demand for health care, too. And since their jobs do not pay enough to cover the cost of living in the United States as a consequence of the price of labor not being allowed to rise, then let us not be surprised when the government has to subsidize their health care. And this causes both an increase in the demand and a drain on the Treasury. Which causes an increase in taxes and inflation, which in turn, you guessed it, makes the health care more expensive still. And given all the expense involved in that, let us just accept that for whatever reason, the government wants the cost of these producers to remain low for some ostensibly reasonable policy goal. Let's just say that the global competition for food prices is such that to increase the cost of domestic food production by allowing agricultural wages to rise would have a negative impact on our food security. And the government has determined that this would pose a national security threat. That's actually not a totally unreasonable conclusion to reach. You, you just, I'll, I think that you probably get that, but if you don't produce your own food, if you have to import all your own food because your wages are just too high, you're like, oh, well, nobody wants to go and like be a farmer. You know, we're all computer programmers now. You know, we'll just order all our food from China. See how that works out for us. This is a national security problem. Okay. So you need domestic food production. The government considers this a policy goal. It's going to say, we're going to make sure that labor wages in agriculture will stay high. Okay, great, fine. How do we want to do that? Instead of allowing waves of uncontrolled migration, we can simply begin subsidizing the wages of the domestic agricultural labor. We can do that. (laughs) If the wages are too low and have to remain that low, then the government can just Subsidize the wages. Now, a lot of Austrian economists would say, no, you can't subsidize the wages. You should just have to buy the food from over there and then everything will be equal. No, we don't want everything to be equal. The whole entire point of this is to not be equal. We want to have it better than other people. Okay, so we want to be able to secure our own food. We don't want to have to worry about buying it from other places. And so we're going to interfere in the economy to accomplish our policy goals. Fine. If the farmer has to pay, you know, $15 an hour for people to go and, you know, do whatever. He's going to go out of business comparative to, you know, his foreign competitor. So the government's going to say, go ahead, pay him $7 an hour. We'll give him the other rate, whatever. Go ahead. As long as the country eats, we don't care, dude. We'll pay the other rate box. Fine. We can even do it through inflationary monetary policy if you want to. This, this would obviously be cheaper than paying unemployment and other poverty benefits to out-of-work Americans while we subsidize the health care and education and other expenses of immigrants who perform the low-wage jobs. This is a great example of market distortion guided by reason to accomplish a sensible policy objective. And as for Social Security, Medicare, and other benefits for seniors, 
These programs are being run into the ground by a number of factors, not the least of which is our birth rates. Why are birth rates low? Well, we could get into some pretty nefarious territory if we wanted to talk about that, but let's not go down too many rabbit holes. Education cannot be assigned too much blame for this, I'd say. We take women who are young and we tell them that we will pay for their college even if they have no realistic path to a career from what is being paid for. And then we fill their heads with feminist nonsense and homosexual propaganda and we wonder why they become lesbian anarchist criminals instead of mothers. Instead, let's use our public education system to venerate motherhood, shall we? Let's train women for motherhood while, they are, while we're teaching them to read and write. Let's teach men not to treat their women as equals, but to treat them as their creators. Hmm? You know, I think it's absolutely insane. Excuse me. I think it's really kind of silly, frankly, that we have uh, one day called Mother's Day. But we have an entire month of LGBTQIA plus pride, you know, LGBTP, you know, the, the whatever, the thing with the pedophiles and stuff. And, you know, the, the Pride Month thing, the entire federal government gets totally invested in this, and along with what, how many different transgender celebrations they have now. They get the Transgender Day of Visibility, the Transgender Day of Awareness, the, you know, Transgender Remembrance Month or whatever, you know, and all of this feeds it. You, you know, you have a 24-7, 365-day scream of left-wing nonsense, okay? But you have one Mother's Day? What is that about? And Mother's Day is what we... We typically think of this as like a hallmark holiday, right? It's not a federal holiday. The banks don't close. Mothers don't get the day off of work, right? And when I talk to women about inequality of the sexes, part of what I try to explain to them is like men and women have different obligations to society and that motherhood is simply one of theirs. Like, okay, we have responsibilities. You have responsibilities. You have to like raise the next generation of people and, you know, um, what is it? Um, she who uh, rocks the cradle rules the world or something to that effect, right? And I explained to them that men, by contrast, we have obligations of providing for them and protecting them, most notably through military service, okay? So you're supposed to go ahead and, you know, uh, raise children, and we are supposed to, uh, we are supposed to go out and lay down our lives to protect you, okay? We're supposed to go die in war and stuff, so... Uh, we'll just call that an even trade, no problem. And then you think about that, and we have a Labor Day, right? And Labor Day is a federal holiday. And we have Veterans Day, and that's a federal holiday. And we have Memorial Day, and that's a federal holiday. So we got these days off that we're like, okay, we'll praise the labor unions, and uh, we got a couple of days for the vets and whatever. I mean, it's nothing compared to what we do for the gays, but you get the idea. But Mother's Day is not a federal holiday. And if this were another sort of production, I might throw out a curse word that referenced animal waste, you know. I think, you know, uh, with all due respect for my Christian friends, Mother's Day should be like bigger than Christmas. You know what I mean? Everybody believes in mothers. And if we hope to continue existing as a species, we might endeavor to keep that way. You follow? At a bare minimum, it should be given equal reverence to military service because without mothers, we got no country to protect and no men to protect it, you follow? So while I've now veered into decidedly cultural territory after complaining about economists doing exactly this, 
I can say that the economic costs of declaring a federal holiday or two are quite small in comparison to the cost of declining birth rates and trying to replace our citizenry with other people's children. If you want to save Social Security and Medicare, honor thy mother. And as a brief aside, before we open up the phones, 217-688-1433, this was the biggest mistake of the alt-right. That movement allowed its righteous revolt against feminism to be dragged into what even reasonable right-wing people with sensible ideas about traditional and complementary gender roles could charitably describe as misogyny or outright woman-hating and unfair disrespect. That is a political point more than an economic one, but it is one that we are going to be paying for for a very long time. And so, if you would like to be heard today, I apologize to those of you who, like, sat on hold and got fed up waiting for me for an hour and a half. But if you'd like to be heard um, in the next 30 minutes, I'll happily take your calls at 217-688-1433. And and if you're not that, then I'll just read a couple of news stories and I'll call it a day because it's already 11 o'clock. Let me see. Where did I pull these things up from? I have a window up that I pulled these things into. Okay. There we go. Excuse me one second here. do like an hour and a half opening monologue i really did that's am. i uh i already you know i had actually written some stuff on the tucker carlson thing and then i just ended up doing it at the beginning of the show so i'm not really going to go into it maybe what i'll do actually hang on a second i know what i'm going to do i'm going to quick play this this is a clip of tucker carlson at the heritage foundation i'm going to do that while i rest my uh, cords here and we'll be right back the terms we use to <laughs> to describe what we're watching So when I started at Heritage, the presumption was, and this is a very Anglo-American assumption, that the debates we're having are kind of rational debates about the way to get to mutually agreed upon outcomes, right? So like we all want the country to be more prosperous and free and people to be less oppressed or whatever. And so we're going to argue about tax rates. And I think higher tax gets, gets us there. I'm a Keynesian and you disagree, you're an Austrian or whatever. But the objective is the same. And so we write our papers, and they write their papers, and may the best papers win. I, I, I don't think that's what we're watching now at all. I don't think we're watching a debate over how to get to the best outcome. I think that's completely wrong. And I've come to this conclusion, not, and I should say at the outset, I'm an Episcopalian, so don't take any theological advice from me, because I don't have any. I grew up in the foul, shallowest faith tradition that's ever been invented. It's not even a Christian religion at this point. Um, I say with shame. but. I'm just saying this as an observer of what's going on. There is no way to assess, say, the transgenderist movement with that mindset. Policy papers don't account for it at all. If you have people who are saying, I have an idea, let's castrate the next generation. Let's sexually mutilate children. I'm sorry, that's not a political debate. What? There's nothing to do with politics. What's the outcome we're desiring here? An androgynous population? Is that really what we are? We arguing for that? I don't, I don't think anyone could like, defend that as a positive outcome. But the weight of the government and uh, you know, a lot of corporate interests are behind that. Well, what is that? Well, it's irrational. If you say, well, you know, I think abortion is always bad. Well, I think sometimes it's necessary. That's a debate I'm familiar with. But if you're telling me that abortion is a positive good, what are you saying? Well, you're arguing for child sacrifice, obviously. It's not about like, oh, a teen, you know, a teen girl gets pregnant and what do we do about that and victims of rape? I, you know, I get it. I, of 
course I understand that, and I have compassion for everyone involved. But when the Treasury Secretary stands up and says, you know what you can do to help the economy get an abortion? Well, you, that's like an Aztec principle, actually. There's not a society in history that didn't practice human sacrifice. Not one. I checked. Even the Scandinavians, I'm ashamed to say. It wasn't just the Mesoamericans. It was everybody. So like, that's what that is. What's the point of child sacrifice? Well, there's no policy goal entwined with that. No, that's a theological phenomenon. And that's kind of the point I'm making. None of this makes sense in conventional political terms. When people or crowds of people, or the largest crowd of people at all, which is the federal government, the largest human organization in human history, decide that the goal is to destroy things, destruction for its own sake, hey, let's tear it down. What you're watching is not a political movement, it's evil. So if you want to assess, and I'll put it in non, and I'll stop with this, I'll put it in non, I'll put it in non-political, uh, or non, rather non-specific theological terms, and just say, if you want to know what's evil and what's good, what are the characteristics of those? And by the way, you know, I, I think the Athenians would have agreed with this. This is not necessarily just a Christian notion. This is kind of a, I would say, widely agreed upon understanding of good and evil. What are its products? What do these two conditions produce? Well, I mean, good is characterized by order, calmness, tranquility, peace, whatever you want to call it, lack of conflict, cleanliness. Cleanliness is next to godliness. It's true. It is. And evil is characterized by their opposites. Violence, hate, disorder, division, disorganization, and filth. So if you are all in on the things that produce the latter basket of outcomes, what you're really advocating for is evil. That's just true. I'm not calling for a religious war, far from it. I'm merely calling for an acknowledgement of what we're watching, which is not what, and I'm not, certainly not backing the Republican Party. I mean, ugh. I'm not making a partisan point at all. I'm, I'm just noting what's super obvious. Like those of us who are in our mid-50s are caught in the past in the way that we think about this. One side's like, no, no, you know, I've got this idea and we've got this idea and let's have a debate about our ideas. They don't want a debate. Those ideas won't produce outcomes that any rational person would want under any circumstances. Those are manifestations of some larger force acting upon us. It's just so obvious. It's completely obvious. And I think two things. One, we should say that and stop engaging in these totally fraudulent debates where we are using the terms that we used in 1991 when I started at Heritage as if maybe, you know, I could just win the debate if I marshaled more facts. I've tried that, doesn't work. And two, Maybe we should all take just like 10 minutes a day to say a prayer about it. I'm serious. Like, why not? And I'm saying that to you, not as some kind of evangelist. I'm literally saying that to you as an Episcopalian. The Samaritans of our time. I'm coming to you from the most humble and lowly theological position you can. I'm literally an Episcopalian, okay? 
And even I have concluded it might be worth taking just 10 minutes out of your busy schedule to say a prayer for the future. And I hope you will. I, uh, I hadn't actually listened to that before we came on the air. I, I saw it at the top of Revolver News. Um, and this is one of the many things that they uh, they said perhaps was uh, feeding into the uh, the feeding frenzy against Mr. Mr. Carlson. And it's it, what it is. It's obvious. I mean, it's everything is what it is. I mean, it's, it's never one thing, right? Why did they come after you? Well, where should I start? You know, it's kind of the idea. And that's probably it. I mean, that is uh, uh, that is the summation of what drives him to oppose all of this wickedness, you know? I, uh... I struggle myself with the uh, with the concept of evil personally, right? I have um, I think that evil would be easier to understand. Evil's a lot easier to understand if you're like, well, you know, there's God and then there's the devil, and it's fairly straightforward. And you know, and I'm I'm not sure that uh, I'm not sure that I I'm not sure that I've adopted that mindset. Let's say. But it's impossible not to notice evil, right? Like, like you're saying, like it's one thing you can understand. You can't. I'm not saying you could justify it, but you totally understand what's going on when somebody steals something. When people are like, you know, what I really want to do is I want to cut off my penis and set things on fire. You're like, well, wait, maybe you're mentally ill, but like, how could there possibly be so many of you? <laughs> That's impossible. So something is going on here, and it's and it's. A lot more easy to explain, I'd say, if you just say, well, you know, you're working for the devil. And I, I, I find myself tempted to do that at times, frankly. And so uh, I guess we're going to find out, aren't we, eventually. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Surreal Politics airs every Monday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And uh, though I do other things at uh, other days of the week... I would invite you to join us on our Rumble channel in the future. I know that some of you guys were watching on DLive. I know some of you guys are having some trouble with Odyssey today. Uh, the, uh, the, the Rumble channel chat has actually been pretty lively today. And so to those of you who have been chatting on Rumble, thank you very much. Of course, thank you to those of you who have been watching on DLive and Odyssey as well. I'm not uh, saying anything bad about you. You guys are nice fellows. Um, but uh, I think that Rumble is interestingly turning out to be a more reliable channel. And is very interestingly... I think giving me some uh, giving me some circulation. I'm actually like seeing more views over there, and so I think it would be great if uh, people would go sign up for the uh, sign up for the Rumble channel. It's uh, Rumble.com/slash/SurrealPolitics. Uh, you'll find links to that on SurrealPolitics.com. And while you're over at SurrealPolitics.com, you might as well become a member. You go to uh, SurrealPolitics.com/slash/join, and uh, it's ten bucks a month. But uh, you know, for people who listen to my other show, I got a promo code out there for them. But I'll tell you. You know, since you guys are listening to this show, I'll give you the promo code for the other listeners. And it's Agenda 33, okay? If you put in code Agenda 33 at checkout, you get your first three months at 33% off, uh, and uh, and, then, and then it's 10 bucks a month after that, okay? And so go become a member at surrealpolitics.com. Join. And then on Wednesdays, we do the members-only chat, and that is a, that's a whole bunch of fun. And you got we uh, everybody just sort of like jumps on a conference call. You can sort of participate. We don't have uh, you don't have to worry about the next guy on hold or whatever. It's not a serial thing. Everybody's just involved. It's kind of a cool thing. And I'm working on uh, other uh, other stuff for you there. We also have uh, merchandise from the old show at uh, surrealpolitics.com/shop. So if you're familiar with the show I used to do, uh, you'll find T-shirts and stuff there. That's not uh, there's not a whole lot of it left. So if you want that piece of history, you should go ahead and get it. 
And uh, if you still, if you've done all that and you still just, you're like, I just have to give this guy more money. He's so good at what he does. You go over to surreal, uh, uh, givesendgo.com slash SPM, like Surreal Politics Media. And there you will find uh, the Give, Send, Go campaign where I'm attempting to raise $5,000 a month to fund this production. Now, if I was to raise $5,000 a month to fund this production, it wouldn't just be that I'm like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to go get me a nice car and I'll get out of this s-hole where I live. You know, I'll do those things. But um, what I, you know what I'd really love to do is like just buy advertising. I just want to promote the thing. I, I do want to buy some new computers and stuff. But I want to promote this show through more traditional means of advertising than I was able to do with the other one. You know, we had a call uh, not so long ago. A guy called into the show asking about this fiasco down there in Virginia and this, you know, this girl who tragically died. And he's like, oh, well, you know, you were, uh, you know, this murderer. And I'm like, no, you know, he's not a murderer. This guy, you know, pointed a gun at him and you and I made the guy look like a fool. And it was kind of it was kind of good. And so I would love to be able to promote the show and get to talking to more people who are not necessarily like entrenched in everything that we do. And that is one of the things that uh, that I will most certainly do if you go over to givesendgo.com slash SPM and help me uh, get my head above water. OK, so go ahead, do those things and we will be back. Well, I'll be back on Wednesday for the members chat. I'll be back on Friday for the other show. But Surreal Politics live every Monday at 930. We'll be back then. Thank you very much for tuning in to Surreal Politics. Have yourselves a wonderful evening and good night.